1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Which rules do we obey and which ones can we find a way around? What distinctions can be drawn between rules, models to be emulated, and algorithms? Well, Lorraine Daston has published widely on the history of science, probability, scientific objectivity and observation, and many other such matters, and she's now published Rules a short history of what we live by. So welcome to you. Thank you. And uh, despite rules being really, as you say, a part of daily life, it's an unusual topic. What, what, What got you thinking about rules? I live three quarters of my life in Germany.
1: And anyone who has spent any amount of time in Germany realizes that although every culture has rules, in Germany, rules have an almost sacral quality to them. And I began to wonder about, as a historian would, not about the dazzling variety of rules, which is, of course, the first thing that captures our attention, especially if we're traveling to a different culture, but the very idea of a rule and the kinds of rules, their
2: genera and species, and also their historical evolution. Right. So you started thinking what different types were were there and where, where did that lead you? It led
1: me very far back indeed. It is the misfortune of historians to start off someplace relatively familiar, like the 18th century, and to wake up in the 3rd or 4th century BCE. So it took me back to the ancient world and to the original meanings of the word rule in ancient Greek and in Latin, which comes from a loan word, actually, the Hebrew for the giant cane plant, which grows all over Eurasia, which had been used for balances, straight edges, all kinds of measuring instruments. That word became canon in, in Greek and regula in Latin. And I then traced three meanings of those words, which proved two of them at least surprisingly durable, still recognizable today, and a third which disappeared sometime around 1800, namely the rule as law, the rule as a measuring instrument, or more figuratively, any kind of calculating device, and the rule as a model. And it's this third, which is at least officially extinct. I don't think it is unofficially extinct. I think it has still a subterranean existence in our lives. Yeah, rule
2: as a model. I mean, that, that is one of the ones that's slightly harder to, to, to sort of, you know, to, to, to to get a grip of. So, why don't we just start with that then? And you have examples of models of behavior, you know, people who are models of behavior, who in, in a sense are setting rules by saying, copy me.
1: Yes, I, I think this is probably most familiar in a religious context. And through, as I say, the 18th century, you can find dictionary definitions which list this as the first definition um, as in the great French encyclopédie, which has under règle synonym, model, um, Jesus Christ is the rule of our life, meaning someone to be emulated. But in a broader sense, it could refer not only to a person, for example, the abbot of a Benedictine monastery, but also um, to a paradigmatic example in a mathematics textbook in looking at the evolution of mathematical textbooks um, from the Middle Ages on, one sees that rules are enunciated, but no one could possibly learn how to solve problems from just the rules. You learn to solve problems, and I think this is still true to the teaching of mathematics today, by doing example after example after example, and often with a paradigmatic example, a special kind of example in mind, which is to The following of rules, what a legal precedent is in the law, something
2: which radiates analogies to the present case. Okay, so that's rule as model. Uh, And then you've got rule as measuring instrument. I mean, there's no connection, is there, between a ruler, you know, to to measure something, and and a rule as in a law, or is there? There is. I mean, um, in English, we
1: still have this meaning fossilized as it is in Latin, which is. A ruler is both a straight edge, which we use to measure things. And it is also that person who governs us, um, the monarch in the case of the UK. So it is indeed a reference to the laws because the ruler is in many societies, also the legislator, the person who gives the laws. This meaning of rule is for everything that keeps us both literally and figuratively on the straight and narrow. It's what assures that the buildings that we build actually are true and stand up. It also assures that we keep to the straight and narrow in terms of the underlying norms which govern our
2: society. You've also got algorithms. How do algorithms relate to rules and and rulers?
1: So the algorithms really belong to this measuring rod Cluster of meanings of rules. Their 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 original meaning is quite restrictive. It they really well into the 19th century they refer to the fundamental operations of arithmetic: addition, subtraction, multiplication, and division, performed with Hindu Arabic numbers. And they derive their name from the Persian, the 9th century Persian mathematician Al-Khwarizmi. So they they very much associated with calculation, not with natural laws. They're they're associated with everyday activities of merchants and also, especially in the Renaissance and thereafter, people who are specialists for more complicated calculations and double entry bookkeeping and the like. It's really not until the turn of the 20th century that algorithms broaden their meaning from this kind of counter meaning of clerks toting up sums to the meaning, the deeper meaning that they have now in the context, for example, of mathematical proofs and later programming computers. And one of the most widely used textbooks on algorithms, computer algorithms and programming, extends the definition to any step-by-step procedure which has a definite input a finite number of steps and a definite output. So that would also cover the instructions for assembling your new IKEA bookshelves. When we talk about rules and laws, we are in fact not talking about synonyms, we're talking more about a spectrum. From one end of the spectrum, those laws which are the most majestic, the most august and the most general in their jurisdiction in the context of human affairs, We are talking about perhaps human rights, something which is considered to be timeless and without boundaries if we're talking about nature, natural laws. And at the other end of the spectrum, we are talking about the nitty grittiest of rules. We are talking about the regulations which tell you whether or not you can park your car on this particular street on Sunday from two to four in the afternoon. And rules I think in our everyday usage occupy a place on that spectrum which is somewhere in between these more most general of laws and these most nitty-gritty of regulations. And if they have a
2: preference, they tend to gravitate toward the nitty-gritty regulations. If you're thinking about, I don't know, the exercise of power, then whether it's a a majestic law or a nitty-gritty law doesn't really matter. I mean, it's someone making another person do something. Uh, either successfully or unsuccessfully, but at least trying to make them do something. Whereas you know, a rule like, you, you can't be faster than the speed of light, a rule like that is different and nothing to do with the exercise of power. So uh, is that a valid distinction? Let's, let's concentrate on laws made by humans for humans to obey.
1: You, you can try by brute force to enforce those kinds of laws or rules or regulations. But since no form of enforcement is seamless people do have to go to sleep no amount of no police force is can can survey every action the rules that succeed and fail do so because they are they've been internalized they are in some fashion rooted in widely held norms and there's always a delicate dance going on between whether a rule is sufficiently internalized to be obeyed most of the time with light enforcement or whether even with heavy enforcement over centuries sometimes, it never takes hold. So let me give an example here. The sumptuary regulations, which at one time or another were a feature of almost every society. These are regulations which govern um, what you can spend your money on, especially what you can wear and who can wear what on what occasion. By the 13th century in medieval Europe, many very prosperous cities had such laws about who could wear red velvet, who could wear fur trim, what kind of fur trim, ermine or sable or squirrel, and on and on and on. We know from the records that these rules were impossible to enforce. It was only after 500 years of trying Polities gave up on trying to get people to wear what they were supposed to wear. And this is a battle which is still being fought in the streets, witness Iran at the moment. So there are some rules which almost, despite brutal enforcement, never really take root in people's psyches. A A counterexample are no smoking rules. I'm old enough to remember when everybody smoked everywhere. It was a slow process that encountered much resistance in order to get non-smoking rules actually observed. And it wasn't merely a question of enforcement, because no amount of enforcement
2: would have been sufficient. It was rather a question of a shift in norms. Right. And and, and that must vary from culture to culture. So in Iran, there's a fight about the hijab. But uh, just next door in Afghanistan today, all women are wearing a burqa, even more restrictive, and, and, and very few exceptions to that.
1: Yes, indeed. Yes. And it's very interesting when a protest, an open protest, catches fire. So for example, in Sudan, the attempt to release women from a very strict dress code, which as I recall, Um, involve a flaying for women wearing trousers in public is part of a much more general protest, as it is in Iran, for freedoms in in society. So yes, no, it absolutely is the case that whether or not a much-resented regulation will face everyday resistance or an open protest, that is a matter
2: of the culture and the circumstances. So is that the only thing that determines the success of a rule the cultural norms that are, are existing in a society where someone's trying to impose it or are there other factors which you've identified that determine whether or not a rule is going to be long lasting and successful
1: It's certainly another factor is enforcement i wouldn't want a rule which is never enforced is a rule which is likely to fall into desuetude. That is, people will no longer even realize that there is such a rule. So enforcement definitely plays a role. But what also plays a role is consistency with other rules. Rules which are in tension with older rules, for example, better established rules, may indeed find themselves more disobeyed than not or simply simply ignored. And there are some rules which definitely have a decay curve. Um, I'm thinking of the rules which govern cycling in almost every city I know, which uh, (laughs) uh, to say that they are honored in the breach would be a euphemism. Um, It's in part because they are not enforced. It's in part because cyclists feel themselves at a disadvantage, but it's in part because they're inconsistent with the existing infrastructure and that um, were the infrastructure being a kind of
2: crystallized rule in physical form. In your book, you make a distinction between thick rules and thin rules. Can you talk us through that? Perhaps why don't you give an example of, of each?
1: Yes. So thick rules are rules which are formulated with an eye toward the variability in the world that the rule is going to have to encounter. They are rules which are cocooned with examples, even exceptions foreseen. And some of the examples that I give in the book are from cookbooks in which um, it's foreseen that there will be many things that you might lack. You might like the right ingredients, you might like the right skills, to perform the procedures, et cetera. But even rules which we might think of as quite dry, for example, the rules of chess in at least the earliest codifications of those rules often include elements that we would consider to be more psychological than actually a part of the rules of the game. So for example, one of the earliest manuals on how to play chess, they tell you, of course, what the worth of each piece is, and that if you touch a piece, you have to move it, and how the knight moves, how the bishop moves, etc. But another rule is, if you notice that your opponent has a certain preference for his knight, you should be willing to sacrifice a piece of higher value, perhaps your bishop or your rook, in order to put him at a psychological disadvantage, since the aim is after all to win by fair means or foul. So those are examples of thick rules. A Thick rule is a rule which assumes that it holds in all contexts, in a sense that the context can be made stable. And therefore there are no needs of adjustments tweaking for the rule to fit a particular situation. And probably the thinnest rules that we encounter every day are computer algorithms. Imagine filling out a, fl- a, file, um, a form online and the form doesn't have the right box for your category. So it's a rule which doesn't foresee, there might be exceptions to the categories formulated by whoever wrote the algorithm which is one of the arguments for more diversity amongst programmers in order to foresee a wider range of human variability.
2: Right. So having made that distinction between rules that people can find ways around and rules that are almost or entirely obeyed as being a thin rule, having, having got that distinction, what's the, what's the usefulness of that distinction? How can you use it?
1: So I
2: should say it it is indeed about, you know, rules which have a certain amount
1: of flexibility, a certain amount of give built into them versus rules which do not. But I'd, I'd argue that there's almost no rule which really, which doesn't encounter exceptions and require some tweaking. But the use of this is, first of all, to understand a major shift that occurs, at least in some societies, over the long history of rules that I track from The ancient world to the present which is that we start out with mostly thick rules and we end up with mostly thin rules and not just algorithms but also bureaucratic rules which do not foresee exceptions which do not build in any kind of latitude for judgment and discretion and that is an interesting long-term evolution it's not one that's irreversible so Anyone who has uh, experienced the last two plus years of the pandemic knows that even the best regulated situation can suddenly collapse. But it is the case that you can build islands of stability, stability both in terms of infrastructure, in terms of technology, but also in terms of a certain form of socialization so that life becomes relatively predictable. And that's the kind of micro-climate, if you will, in which the thin rules flourish, whether or not they're mathematical or simply bureaucratic. Whereas if you're in a situation, and there are certainly parts of the world which fit this description as well, there's a high level of variability. You're constantly have to, having to adjust to unexpected circumstances. You still see that it's the thick rules which dominate.
2: Would you say then that a society with thin rules is likely to be a wealthier society, you know, more ordered, more successful?
1: It's certainly, it's certainly I mean, well-ordered is almost synonymous with, with that kind of uh, society. Whether it's successful or not is another question. So I'm thinking, for example, of um, certain cities. Let's just, let's just take, for example, a Renaissance city like Florence or Siena. These are cities. Which are in some by some measures, extraordinarily successful. They are cities in which the arts have been developed to a high degree of refinement, a degree of refinement that we still admire in museums, and in which also political thought reaches a high point. But they are not, they are not cities of thin rules. (laughs) They are not cities where you can predict what's going to happen from one day to the next. They are still cities of of thick rules. And then there are other cities which are extremely well-governed, extremely predictable, but which we might feel, perhaps because of that very reason, are not particularly successful on other dimensions. I'm thinking, about, I'm thinking about the former East Germany in which life was, I think, quite predictable, but perhaps not ideal in
0: other respects. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system.
2: Yeah, I mean, you, you could say North Korea has lots of thin rules, but uh, you wouldn't particularly want to go there or live there.
1: Yes, right, exactly. So, so it's it, it certainly, it, it, the question is, how much does control and predictability matter to you? If that matters to you more than anything else, then these societies are successful. But if it's only one dimension among many in your evaluation of whether a society has succeeded or failed, then perhaps the accounting
2: looks different. Well, I was hoping you could guide us on that, actually, having put so much thought into all this. I mean, do you think that rules make people happy? And, and, and perhaps we should say, do different types of thickness of rules lead to greater human happiness?
1: That's a really interesting question. I, I, don't, I don't know whether I have a, an answer which really would cover all cases, but let me, let me tentatively say that I think a society which leaves absolutely no room for discretion for the exercise of judgment is not a happy society. And it's something that's extremely interesting about the modern world that the exercise of discretion and the exercise of judgment has been systematically conflated with the the wastrel run of wanton subjectivity. As if to call something a judgment call is to say that it is a whim or a caprice. That seems to me a distinct impoverishment of the notion of judgment. And judgment is the faculty of which we all need to fit general rules to particular cases. And the fact that um, in our society, the exercise of discretion, whether it's by a bureaucrat, by the umpire of a sports game, by a teacher, is considered tantamount to an abuse of power And that strikes me as, first of all, really interesting historical evolution that was certainly not the case um, two centuries earlier, maybe even a generation earlier, and also a sign of widespread societal distrust.
2: Well, yeah, but there's a reason for it. I mean, it's because it's unfair, isn't it? I mean, you know, it's an equality thing that if, if someone uses their judgment in a different way from the next bureaucrat. Yeah, you know, If one bureaucrat's got a different judgment than the next bureaucrat, you end up with inequality and unfair uh, outcomes for the individuals who are receiving these different interpretations.
1: Yes, that is indeed the most powerful argument against it. And it's why bureaucratic rules um, have become so thin, because mm-hmm. in especially democratic polities, we are so acutely conscious of the possibilities of of unfair treatment. The question is whether unfair treatment is always unjust treatment. So in cases in which there might be mitigating circumstances, whether or not, even though it's unfair in the sense that everyone is not being treated exactly alike, it might be a betrayal of justice to apply the rule rigidly in that case.
2: Yeah, but it's tricky, isn't it? So I mean, we're almost saying that democracy, the, you know, the the whole ideas of equality and democracy are possibly, I mean, it's another reason to doubt democracy, is that we've got so many piling up at the moment. Uh, and it's another one that this it may lead to less satisfactory outcomes, these rigid, thin rules.
1: So there are, there are at least islands within democracies in which we still expect discretion to be exercised. Um, most obviously in the courts. Not for nothing are they called judges. It would be false to say that we no longer have any licensed discretion in our democracies. We said we call judges, judges for a reason because they are called upon to exercise judgment in specific cases, especially in the severity of the punishment meted out. So even if there's no ambiguity about the fact that a crime has been committed, The culprit is the person accused. There is considerable discretion still possible in the sentencing procedure, although even there, there have been some attempts, for example, in drug convictions in the United States to circumscribe that discretion. There's always a fear about the excesses of discretion, that it might become arbitrary. But at least in the history of courts, for example, the courts of equity in early modern British law, there was an attempt to correct the severity of the courts of common law with an appeal to the court of equity in which high-level discretion could be exercised if the case seemed to warrant it. Discretion is being exercised, and I would also argue, and this perhaps returns to the model, that We haven't lost the model, even if it's no longer a meaning, a dictionary meaning of the rule. We follow models all the time when we are trying to follow a rule. And often, because we are calibrating ourselves by what others are doing when they're following the rule, we build in a measure of discretion as to how much bending of the rule will be allowed before it breaks. And the prototypical case is, what exactly is the speed limit? Is it the posted speed limit? Is it the speed that all the other cars are going? I mean, that's a daily exercise of discretion and model following that is familiar, I think, to everyone.
2: Thinking about the importance of rules, you you write about Carl Schmidt, who comes up amazingly often these days. Can you tell us Well, just remind people who haven't heard of Carl Schmitt who who he was and why he's relevant to this discussion in your book.
1: Carl Schmitt was a 20th century German jurist and political theorist. He was also a member of the Nazi Party. And unlike anyone who claims simply to have been um, a fellow traveler, he was a very convinced member of the Nazi Party. He defines sovereignty by the ability to make exceptions. He's an enemy of the kind of predictable rules and laws, which he feels are a kind of tyranny of a certain form of liberal thinking, the rule of law. And he is an advocate for the power to declare exceptions based on no legitimacy except the will of the sovereign. So, he is somebody who questions the legitimacy of the laws, the rules, and invests total power in one person, the sovereign.
2: Yeah. And I mean, the the, the historical record is that that didn't work out at all well. I mean, it, it's it's very much in favor of rules.
1: Indeed, it was a really rotten idea in practice. Um, And even Schmidt, I think, must have realized Uh the limitations of this doctrine in practice. Um, It's one thing to endorse Adolf Hitler as the sovereign, the person who is licensed to suspend all rules upon his caprice. It's quite another to want to suspend the rational bureaucracy Which is supposed to execute those dicta. That is, Adolf Hitler as a person is only, you know, two hands and two feet. He requires an army, a literal army and a figurative army to enforce his dictates, and they work by
2: rules. When you studied this, what surprised you? What came out of your research and your thinking on this? Where, you know, when you went into it, you didn't imagine you'd have come across you know, X or Y. What, what, what surprised you?
1: It would be that the kind of rule which has succeeded most famously turns out to be rules of spelling. Uh, these are rules which are purely conventional. Everybody knows that they are the haphazard product of historical accident. And yet, every time a nation attempts to reform its spelling rules in Germany, in France, in Britain, in the United States, elsewhere, there is a furore like unto you know the massacre of the innocents before your eyes. Um, and I, I realized only retrospectively that one reason why these rules of spelling are embraced with such fervor is because that they symbolize belonging to a nation, belonging to a, a language. And I don't think it's an accident that the winners of the American national spelling bee, which fetishizes correct orthography, have been almost without exception in recent years, the children of immigrants um, whose parents themselves probably don't speak English at home. So that it is a badge of belonging to the new culture. The very first person in the United States to win such a spelling contest, I think in 1908, was a 14-year-old African-American girl in Ohio. Again, a symbol of how spelling is so symbolically fraught with genuine belonging almost always of people who find themselves on the outside looking in to a
2: polity. What's the future of rules? Where are they headed? You talked about that trend from thick to thin. Yes, I think that the experience of the past few years
1: has really changed my mind about this so had the pandemic never happened and I was almost at the conclusion of my book when the pandemics broke over us I would have had a glib teleological story about the march of modernity from thick to thin rules I've changed my mind about that and I hope it comes through in the book which is I think that we can create islands, even archipelagos of thin rules, of societies in which thin rules work. But they are very brittle. They're they're quite fragile. They can be overwhelmed at any moment and turn us back into a world of thick rules. So I do not think there is any straightforward narrative to be derived from this long history.
2: Well, thank you very much for telling us about that long history.
1: It was my great pleasure.